This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And let me invite you all who are staying in with us to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. And we'll be concluding Luke 5 by looking through verses 33 to 39 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on the side racks. We'd love for you to grab a copy of that and uh, let it be a gift to you from us. If you don't have a Bible at home, you'll find our text on page 809 in those Bibles that are provided. I want to read our passage this morning and then we'll pray together. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. This is God's Word. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and this time to gather with your people. Lord, every week it is a privilege. It is a responsibility to come together under the authority of your word, Lord, to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate the good news, to to witness to the change that it brings. Lord, to feast on your word. Lord, we pray that you would fill us now with your word, that you would teach us, that you would satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that is better than life. Lord, we pray that our hunger for this world and for things of this world would be growing so dim, so slight, because of a greater affection, a new hunger for the things of you, and especially for you. There is nothing behind the curtain better than you. And so, Lord, we we ask that you would give us hearts that long and ache and hunger for you, and that our lives would be characterized by the joy that comes from knowing you and the peace that comes from knowing you. Guard us from nominalism. Guard us from routine. Guard us from a coldness that would creep in to our hearts. Guard us from hopelessness. We pray that you would infuse life in us. We pray that we would not try to stick you on to a life and go on unchanged, but that you would burst through any bonds any man-made mold that we would make for you. We ask for your help now as we look to your word. 
Oh Lord, open our eyes and our ears. Spirit, we pray you would come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been staring at Jesus, looking at his life, looking at the way that he went about day-to-day ministry as he's beginning this ministry in Luke's gospel. And we're coming to a place of concluding chapter 5. And as we've done that, we've seen people's response to Jesus kind of fall down kind of in two places. Some are clearly amazed at Jesus. Some are blown away. Some worship Him. Some call to Him. Some leave everything behind and follow Him. But others reject Him. Others are suspicious of Him. Others doubt Him. Others try to kill Him. I think that those two paths are important for us to just notice at this point. Sitting and doing this, looking at the life of Jesus, studying the life of Jesus, is is very dangerous for a nominal Christian. A Christian in name only. Because you'll notice that people don't, don't react that way to Jesus. They don't just hang out and like, yeah, that's cool, I'm going to go. It's one or the other. It's either he's my Lord or I'm against him. My prayer is that nominal Christianity would be rooted out of this place. That you would be uncomfortable as a Christian in name only through, through just the service, through, through hearing God's word read, through hearing people pray songs that are exalting Christ and not just tickling our fancy. But that we would be confronted with the person and work of Jesus Christ and not be able to walk away just as we were. We would be enriched and changed and redeemed Some of the most enjoyable times that I've had in my life, I can remember, trace back to when I was a new Christian or when I'm around new Christians who seem pretty excited, pretty optimistic about life and are are gung-ho and and ready to go. And I have to ask myself, why is that? It isn't because Jesus has changed. The reality of what he's done and what he's doing in my life, his saving ministry hasn't changed. Purchasing my pardon sacrificing his life for me hasn't changed. But the longer we live, the easier it is to give into the temptations that especially lurk in religious places that look normal. But self-righteousness, pride, busyness, independence from God, and a coldness toward the Savior. Friends, don't you want to have the same amazement on your face, on your dying deathbed that you did when you first came to know Jesus at your conversion? Don't you want to praise Him as much or more on that day and be as amazed or more on that day? Enthralled with Him, hungry for Him, full of joy. I love the story that William J. tells, who was a good friend of John Newton's. And he visited him in the last days of his life. Many of you know Newton's story. As a younger man, Newton was a slave trader, uh, a general scoundrel. And God's amazing grace found him, hence the, the song. And Jay described his last visit to Newton's home like this. Quote, I saw Mr. Newton near the closing scene. He was hardly able to talk. 
But I had noted down upon my leaving these words. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Friends, we've seen so far that it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus has not come for the righteous, meaning the self-righteous, but for sinners, those who know they need a Savior. And Luke is going to conclude this chapter with another question from the Pharisees that's related to something that's just happened. If you have not been with us, Levi, the tax collector, has been called by Jesus to be a disciple. He's left everything to follow him. And then he called all of his tax collecting friends and sinners and threw a party with Jesus as the honored guest. And so Levi was called by God. He was changed by God. He repented and followed Jesus and worshiped and witnessed for Jesus all to the glory of God. But the Pharisees were kind of there looking through the window, critical that Jesus would eat and drink with such sinful people. But their criticisms are going to grow. So, so now not only are they upset with who he's eating and drinking with, but that he's eating and drinking at all. That he's not fasting like the disciples of John and the other Pharisees. And so, as usual, the Pharisees' critique of Jesus only further clarifies his identity and his mission. That's kind of the way it works. They come at him with these criticisms, and it just helps us to see more clearly who he is. And I think that's part of Luke's purpose as he's writing this gospel. And so, Jesus is going to respond to the question about fasting with language about a wedding. And if you're thinking about this passage, I would kind of put that theme over the whole passage, kind of a a wedding theme. All of these illustrations have something to do with a wedding. There's a bridegroom, there's fancy clothes, and there's wine. But his point beneath all of it is that Jesus is not bringing a slight adjustment to the Judaism of the Pharisees. He's come to do something new, something better, something full of joy and hope. And the old way can't be mixed with this way. So if you're taking notes, thinking about the way the text breaks down, here's how we'll go about it. First, we're going to see that question about fasting. That's in verse 33, a question about fasting. And then he's going to respond with four illustrations, kind of a mixture of parables and proverbs all around this wedding theme. And I'll sum each of them up kind of with just one word. And I'll give you a hint up front. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. Most of our time on the first one, number one, bridegroom. Jesus says he is a bridegroom. You see that in verses 34 and 35. But he also uses these illustrations of clothing, verse 36, wineskins, verses 37 and 38, and wine, verse 39, old and new. So that's kind of the way we'll go about this. Thinking about the question and then these illustrations, particularly focused on Jesus as the bridegroom and these other illustrations of clothing, wineskins, and wine. Jesus is teaching us who he is and how his disciples should relate to him. May we see and rejoice. Let's look first at this question about fasting there in verse 33. I don't know about you, but I don't usually appreciate it when people come to me and say, hey, everyone is upset. Or lots of people are talking. Lots of people are concerned. I, don't, I would rather some more specificity about who's actually concerned. But here Luke leaves it leaves it kind of open. He doesn't identify the speaker there in verse 33 about who's asking this question. 
But if you go back and look at Matthew's gospel, who certainly would remember the situation. Remember, that's Levi, the one who's been converted and had the dinner party. He records that it's actually the disciples of John the Baptist that bring this question to Jesus, with the Pharisees likely standing by. Now, I think that points to this being not just a question from the Pharisees, but a general kind of question the Jews are asking. So look there again at verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And so I think there, we should have some, some, some sympathy with this question, especially because we know it's coming from not just the Pharisees who are kind of these rule followers, and, but from John the Baptist's disciples. It's not surprising, is it, that they especially would be asking about this, that, that they would be copying their master, who was a religious kind of ascetic, wasn't he? Um, doing the things that he did. He lived a very barren lifestyle. Uh, his message was essentially calling for mourning and repentance. Mourning over sin, repentance from sin, preparation. He is the ultimate final prophet from the old covenant era to prepare the way for the new covenant, for the Messiah. He dressed like a prophet in camel's hair and, and leather had a leather belt. He ate locusts. He ate bugs and wild honey. So, of course, these guys are, are wanting to know they're doing these things. But that kind of lifestyle and fasting, asceticism, it really is woven into his purpose from God to prepare the way for the Lord, to cry in the wilderness, repent. He is here. Jesus is come. Fasting under the old covenant is characterized mainly around two themes. The first is mourning over sin. So personal sin, national sin, painful circumstances, easier for me to say. And also hopeful expectations of the Messiah. So mourning over sin, hopeful expectations of the coming Messiah. Think of the prophetess Anna in Luke 2. She was advanced in years. She was a widow, but she didn't depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See how that's how, what kind of her heart is behind her fasting and prayer. Really, there's only one command in the Old Testament about fasting, and it relates to the Day of Atonement in Le Leviticus 16. But the people of Israel did fast on many other occasions. The Jews mourned over the edict of uh, Xerxes uh, in Esther to, to wipe them out. They mourned through fasting. The, the prophet Joel called Israel to a repentant fast in Joel 1. But along with this appropriate use of fasting that we see in the Old Testament, there were abuses, there were misuses as well. Many began to think of it as kind of a mark of self-achievement, a higher rank of holiness, even sometimes a cloak for just doing what you wanted to do, a cloak for evil. The prophets would warn against this kind of fasting. Listen to Isaiah 58, verse 3. They're asking God, why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? But in the day of your fast, the Lord says, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. 
So it's this external kind of religious vending machine approach. We'll fast, God will do certain things, and we'll be able to kind of do our own agenda as we like. And then, of course, the Pharisees in Jesus' day took it to a whole other level. They had declared that the godly people will fast now twice a week. And so Mondays and Thursdays, if you want to know, those are days of fasting for those that are godly in Judaism. And the consistent note that marked their fasting was mourning and sadness. Some viewed it as a sacrifice, a mournful offering of one's own flesh to God that would gain God's attention. Friends, mourning over sin like this is not, is not wrong, of course. But the Pharisees seem to be really more interested in the appearance of godliness, the appearance of sadness over their sin, than genuine repentance. And so they tried to look as gloomy as possible when fasting. And some actually whitened their face with makeup so as to, to look emaciated. They refused uh, to bathe. They wore their clothes in disarray to be seen in public as particularly devout and holy. So so fasting is seen as a a major part of Judaism. It's appropriate when done from the heart. It's not for show. And I think the disciples of John are modeling a right attitude toward fasting. They're, They're part of the last chapter of the Old Testament. That's John's purpose. And even though the Pharisees are caught up in this self-righteous charade, it really does stand out when Jesus and his disciples come kind of like doing the opposite, kind of partying while everybody else is fasting and mourning. Of course, we know that Jesus did fast at times. We've read about that already. And his followers are encouraged to do that. We'll see that as well. But here, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I fast too. He actually defends his disciples and tries to clarify his entire mission. Now, that's kind of the the question then. So so why are you guys not fasting? Let's think about Jesus' response, and he will go into these four illustrations. And the first one is the bridegroom. The The bridegroom. Look again at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? On the surface, this illustration makes sense, and it's actually pretty helpful. It's almost rude, isn't it, to go to a wedding and say, I'm sorry, thank you for all the time and the wedding cake that you've put into this experience, but I'm fasting. That's, that's not what people do. It's a time for feasting. It's a time for celebration, eating and drinking. But underneath the surface, when Jesus speaks about himself as the bridegroom, That hits the ears of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist in in a very deep way because there's deep, deep imagery in the Old Testament throughout of God's redemption of his people laid out in this framework on this shape of God as a groom and his people as his bride. He's pursuing and cleansing and preparing for himself a bride. That's the Old Testament story. Listen to the way Isaiah records this reality in Isaiah 54. I'm going to mention some verses. I don't expect you to turn there. You might just want to jot them down to kind of think about verses about the bridegroom. Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife. 
deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth. When she is cast off, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And this is always God's people. God is a husband. We are His people, His wife. God calls one of his own prophets to act this reality out in real time. That's his calling from God to express this reality, to marry an unfaithful bride, to be cheated on, and then to pursue her in her sin and redeem her from slavery and forgive her and take her back and be restored to her. And God doesn't want the people who are hearing about the story of Hosea to miss the relationship there between Hosea and Gomer. Listen to a few verses. Hosea 2, verse 1, or Hosea 2, 14 and following. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, he says, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, speaking of Israel, the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And this is beautiful marriage language and it is righteous. It's going to be done in faithfulness, justice, God is going to be holy welcoming in this bride who's sinful. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. I am the one. I've come to purchase a bride for myself. This is what John the Baptist alludes to in John 2 when he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, me, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, you see, kind of on the face of it, if if fasting is related to mourning over sin and waiting with an expectation of the Messiah, why the disciples of Jesus are not fasting? Jesus is There, he has come to take away their sin. He is the hopeful expectation. He's with them. They're the wedding party. His mission is his bride, the church. Ancient Jewish weddings had three phases. The contract. The parents would sit down and arrange things. We still do that here at our church. If you're here, we do arranged marriages only. That's a joke. Sort of. Number one, the contract. The parents would arrange the marriage, but then they would settle on a bridal price. And that contract effectively began the marriage. It was a betrothal. You had to get divorced in order to get out of that relationship. The couple didn't begin to live together, though, as husband and wife yet. The second phase came with an indefinite time period when the groom returned to his father's house 
to then prepare a place for himself and his bride to, to live in and add on to his father's home, a remodeling of a room for them. And meanwhile, the bride was to wait and watch expectantly for her husband to return to bring about that final phase when the father gave permission and said, it is ready. Go get your bride. And he comes and she receives him to consummate the marriage and celebrate. Does that sound familiar? John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be to myself so that where I am, you may be also my bride. The marriage contract has been arranged in eternity past. The son has come now to pay the bridal price on the cross. It would cost his life, his perfect, sinless, holy life to purchase this bride, to cleanse them from their sin, to take their punishment. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus did for us. He died in our place to redeem us from our sin. And now he calls us to himself, to repent of our sin, to trust in him, because he is preparing a place for us, for you and me. He will come again to receive us, to consummate the marriage the, at this great cosmic wedding feast beyond our wildest imagination. If you're jotting down scriptures, jot down Revelation 19, 6 through 8. John sees this, doesn't he? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Friend, if you're married, this is why you're married. This is why. To give a preview to the world of this day. To, to model this, to, to experience a fraction of the joy of this kind of relationship in this life that would prepare you to meet the groom. Now, we don't have time to unpack this in Ephesians 5, but you know it's there. Husbands, love your wife as Christ, love the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as, as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Even if you're not married, what a reminder that marriage is not the gospel. Marriage is not the end. Marriage is not God. It is there to point to this beautiful relationship between Christ and the church. The application I really want to make has more to do with the wedding analogy that Jesus uses as he speaks about fasting. Can you make wedding guests fast 
while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no. The implied answer is no, of course not. You don't fast at a wedding. You rejoice, you feast, you eat and drink. And so Jesus is saying, my disciples are in the wedding party. They're with me. The one the prophet spoke about, the reason the world exists for me, why would they be sad? Why would they long for something else? And so there's, I think, a word for us. We, we have Jesus, those of us who know him and trust him. What more can we ask than him? We get him. We get a relationship with the Father. We get the greatest joy and satisfaction imaginable, only found in our Creator and Redeemer. His presence is a constant soul bath for sin-stained sinners and saints, a continual feast. Immer Bombach wrote about a time when she was sitting in church one Sunday and a small child turned around and began to smile at the people behind them. You can imagine that happening in our church. A small child turns around and smiles. When her mother noticed, she told her daughter in kind of a stage whisper, stop grinning, you're in church. She gave her a swift swat. She said, okay, now that's better. Friends, what, what does the, Paul say about the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. What else? Joy. 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 Charles Simeon once watched a converted prisoner stand on the gallows before he was going to be hanged and for a half hour joyfully declare his faith, after which he, quote, then commended his soul into the hands of Jesus and launched into eternity without a doubt, without a sigh. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus went to the cross. There's nothing better than knowing and following Jesus. Psalm 63, 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. Now, we don't live in a time when Jesus is tangibly there where we can be like the disciples and, and say we're sitting with him and talking with him and walking with him. The groom has been taken away. And Jesus understands that. He says he's going away for a time. Notice what he, how, he, how he kind of prepares the, his answer. He includes this in his answer in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Now, I think that's a reference both to the cross and to the ascension. Okay, both the cross and the ascension. I have good friends that, that don't think uh, fasting is appropriate today as a spiritual discipline because they see this as only referring to the cross. So, so why fast? We have, we have Jesus. I disagree. I think there's a, there's a greater experience awaiting every believer to know Jesus face to face. And Jesus understands that and, and is, is speaking about that here. He's taken away at the cross for three days, it's darkness and sadness. But then he's raised from the grave and he comes back from the dead and they have him 
to watch him and be with him again. Mary, if you remember, tries to hang on to him, not let him go. And he's like, you got to let me go. I've got other things to do. And then he was going away again. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He leaves. So we fast. We wait. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that illumines us, that, that speaks to us, that leads us, that glorifies Christ, that comforts us. But even with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we cry out. All creation cries out for final redemption. We're still in the not yet part, waiting for the groom to return and the consummation of all things. So there's feasting and there's fasting. We're we're feasting, particularly as you think about that as a church, as we come together for the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of, of where our eternity lies. The body broken for us, the blood cleansing us. And yet we still fast and long for more of Jesus. We see this in the early church in the book of Acts. The church is worshiping and fasting before they set apart Barnabas and Saul for their mission journeys in Acts 13. Before Paul and Barnabas would appoint elders in churches, Acts 14, they they pray and fast to receive God's guidance. Jesus tells us how to fast in Matthew 6. And he begins with, when you fast, when you fast, don't do it like the Pharisees to be seen by others. Do it in secret. Keep it in between you and God. So, brother and sister, if, if fasting is not part of your life at all, I think this is a good, appropriate time to ask, why is that? Why is that? If you're struggling with prayer, struggling to be consistent, struggling to hunger and enjoy God in prayer, what a tool. What a, what a way to seek to stir up and be reminded of your need for God. What is it that we do every day without thinking about it? Eat. Eat. I don't have my week planned out, but I know probably two to three times every day I'm going to eat something and I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to have lunch with somebody. I'm going to have dinner. I'm going to have breakfast. But if we begin to take those away and instead of sitting down at breakfast and instead of having lunch, we spend that time in prayer, reading the word, crying out to God, we're reminded that actually we need God more than we need food. We're, we're more dependent on God than we are on food. But we act like all we need is food and drink and, and we're good. But without God, we have nothing. Oh, fasting is a great aid in reminding us of this, of our complete, utter need for God. If you're, if you're in a besetting sin and you're caught, you are hitting a wall, fast and pray. Ask the Lord to give you strength. Ask the Lord to give you greater desire for him than for this sin. As a church, periodically, we'll call a a corporate fast. We see this in the New Testament as well and the Old Testament. Fast and pray about a a great decision that's that's coming up that you, you don't know what to do. Again, Acts 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So there's fasting and praying. The Holy Spirit guides and leads, he says, and then there's more fasting and praying. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for, for you. Don't you want to be there? Greater awareness of God, his direction, his presence. Friend, if you find yourself in this dullness to spiritual, kind of the spiritual reality of the loss that you know, fast and pray that God would break your heart for them. Fast and pray for the coming of Jesus Christ to wipe away every tear, bring every justice and relief to return for his bride. We don't have to be perpetually sad. We have the groom. He's preparing a place for us. We are longing for his return eagerly and joyfully. If you'd like to learn more about fasting and think more about kind of this, there's a great chapter in Don Whitney's book on the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. I would commend it to you highly. So we see Jesus' first illustration is the bridegroom. And then he's going he's gonna to give kind of these, these back-to-back kind of pictures of clothing and wineskins and wine to illustrate what he's doing is altogether new, altogether lovely. Altogether new, altogether lovely. Now look at verse 36. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Imagine going to the mall and you pick out a shirt you're going to wear to church next Sunday. But as soon as you get home, you, you cut off the right sleeve and you use that as a patch for the shirt that you use to mow the yard in each week that's stained and, and got holes in it. And you patch that old shirt with this new patch. Well, what have you done? You've made an old shirt, now a mismatch where it looks even worse than it did, and you've ruined your brand new shirt, right? That's the theme in these little illustrations. You try to mix match these realities, you ruin both. You ruin both. Friend, even if you have hoarding tendencies, you're gonna agree that that's too far. The same principle applies for wineskins. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. These wineskins would be made of goat skin and so stripped, tanned, cleaned. They use the neck, the part of the neck to make a little, uh, stitch it together to make a, a container for liquid, for wine. And when a wineskin was new, it was, it was elastic, it was strong, and so it would, it, it would allow for it to expand when the wine was poured in and fermented and it expanded. But if you, if you put new wine into old wineskins that are brittle and inflexible, that's eventually what would happen to them. When the wine ferments, the skins burst and you lose the wine and the wineskins. So Jesus says new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So he's saying that in one sense, Judaism has become an old, worn-out garment. Old wineskins. It can't be patched up and fixed. That's not why he's come. 
It couldn't contain the news that Jesus Christ brings with the gospel of grace. And we see this being worked out in the New Testament in places like Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Some are suggesting imposing the Mosaic law on Gentile believers. Paul deals with this in the Galatian, or Galatian heresy with the Judaizers. And even Paul, when he confronts Peter, as he drifts away from the gospel and he himself is refusing to fellowship with the Gentiles, Jesus is saying, I am bringing new wine and a new cloth that is complete. I am bringing the new covenant because I have fulfilled the old. I have fulfilled the law on our behalf. I am the temple, the place where you meet with God. That's me. I am the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb who takes away your sin. I'm leading the second exodus. Not out of slavery from Egypt, but out of slavery from sin. I'm the new Adam. I'm the new mediator, priest, the new prophet, the new king. I am the groom. Come for my bride. We're free, Paul says to the Galatians. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, as he's speaking about circumcision and seeking to be justified by the law. But friends, this principle actually works really well for anything that you would seek to kind of incorporate into following Jesus. Any kind of religion or any kind of self-made system that you think would save you, along with Jesus, Jesus and legalism, Jesus and our good works, Jesus and our social justice, Jesus and my being in the right kind of theological tribe, Jesus and the right person that I vote for in November. Those wineskins cannot hold the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will lose both the gospel and the skins. Self-righteousness is the besetting sin of the religious, as someone has said. And step one in becoming a religious Pharisee is using your own example, your own practice as a requirement for everyone else to obey. Friends, it's faith in Christ alone that saves us. Jesus is saying something radically new is here. He's come to bring an explosive, expansive joy to people who desperately need to be saved. And this is not something that be can, can contained within the religion and rules of the Pharisees who want to stay separate from sinners. This is true for, for all of us. We can't contain Jesus in the mold that we really want to live our lives this way, add Jesus onto it, not patch him onto our lives and just keep going the way that it's always been. It is all or nothing. He's either Lord or an enemy. And Jesus acknowledges with this last illustration, not everybody's going to be in with that. Not everybody wants that. Look at what he says there in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. The old is good. Usually we think old wine is better. But that's not always true. A lot of factors there. It depends on the wine. It depends on the vintage, the grapes, the soil, the climate, all those things, the type. Some wine actually doesn't get better with age. It ruins. But if you're used to drinking only the old, familiar wine... Some are not going to be willing to try the new. They're comfortable with the old. We're used to making mud pies in the slum. 
and can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Jesus' salvation is fresh. It's better. It's saving like new wine. It brings everlasting and expanding joy. It brings feasting and celebration. But the Pharisees are so convinced that the wine of their tradition is better, they won't even try the new. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe, maybe you've been thinking about this for a while and you've kind of come to the conclusion that, yeah, I think maybe this Christianity stuff doesn't actually make a difference in the end. Friend, I wonder, have you really tried looking into carefully, seriously, who Jesus is? I want to challenge you to do that. I want to challenge you to look at this gospel, the gospel of Luke, and read it. Just read it cover to cover and see what happens. And I want to encourage you not to base your decision about who he is on what you saw growing up in church, on what you've seen on the news or heard others say about some Christians that you know in politics. Base it on Jesus, what you read here. I want you to take the advice of the psalmist, Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We're going to hold out Jesus. We're here at our church. We're seeking to do the best that we can in following him by his grace. We want you to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're looking to him for hope. We're turning from our sin, looking to him. We want you to do that, to listen to Jesus, study him, obey him. And there you'll find joy like you've never experienced. You'll find hope. You'll find a savior. And beloved, I hope that this will stir our own hope in him, remind us of the promises that await us at the great wedding banquet, that we have him, we get him, and he has not forgotten about us. Remember his promise in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And just hear his recorded last words in scripture, last recorded words. And I want you to imagine that last day you know, I do weddings, I do a lot of weddings, and I always, when the bride opens the door in the back, I'm always looking at the groom, always, and watching the groom's face light up often, break down in, in tears, be amazed that this is his bride. But friends, it's, it's, it's turned now. That's Jesus' face when he sees us. He's prepared us, and we are pleasing to him. He loves us. He's longing for us. He's coming for us. And when he sees us, he will experience joy in us. He says in Revelation 22, verse 20, surely I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to live in light of those last words that you are indeed coming soon. You're preparing a place for us. Lord, what better place to invest our life than in your bride? What better people to give ourselves to than the ones that you have died for, washed with your blood. Thank you for this gathering, this body, these saints, 
at University Park Baptist Church. What a joy to know them and to see your work in them. Lord, be preparing them. Be preparing us for this day. Stir in us a joy, a hunger for you. We pray you would be glorified in us. Oh, Lord, and show us that on that day you'll be pleased with us because you have purchased us in righteousness. You have betrothed us to yourself. We love you, Lord. We sing your praises. It's in Jesus' name that we say these things. Amen.